The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. We've been working with our industry partners and with researchers to do some of these ransomware pre-notifications. We'll find out about infections that have occurred but have not yet been activated. And our field force is on the front line of reaching out and talking to partners saying, you know, we are seeing this activity on your networks. And I just got an outreach from somebody the other day saying, hey, I got a call from this person in the field. They told us about this activity. We were able to isolate it. It's fantastic. And, you know, that's like a great day, right? When you feel like you can help prevent a business from getting owned by a bunch of cyber criminals. And, you know, that's work that we do with our federal government partners, but also with our industry partners. I'm David Chris, And I'm Brian Cunningham. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 15th, the Ides of March, 2023. As director of the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Jen Easterly is one of several women at the very top of the cybersecurity pyramid in the United States. A graduate of West Point, decorated U.S. Army officer and a Rhodes Scholar, Jen has served her country in a plethora of senior cybersecurity and counterterrorism roles and, most recently before her return to government, was the senior resilience officer at Morgan Stanley. We talk with Jen about everything cybersecurity, about the need for revolutionary new approaches to emerging threats to our cyber and national security, the recent U.S. national cyber strategy, the cyber offense defense flywheel, and even where her avatar got her cape. Jen also talks about CISA's priorities for the coming years, new cyber incident reporting requirements, and new cybersecurity help coming to a city near you. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 15th, Jen Easterly. Jen, we have a lot of important and timely topics to discuss, and we'll get to those in just a moment, but I wanted to take a point of personal privilege and just note that you and I first met serving together on the National Security Council staff under Condoleezza Rice in uh, the early part of this century, which sounds like a funny thing to say, but I guess that's how old we are. And I just wanted to note in terms of career paths that that time as deputy legal advisor to the NSC is still near the top of my CV, but it doesn't make your bio on CISA's website. So that's how far you've come since then. But all seriousness, your journey from West Point to the White House, to Cyber Command, to Morgan Stanley, I think there's a back in the White House there I missed at one point, to now running the CISA is, is, a, is a moving and important journey. And I, I think our viewers would love to hear about it. 
Yeah, well, thanks so much, Brian. It's great to be with you both. Despite the fact that it didn't make my my short bio, you you know, the time that you mentioned was really fundamental for me um, in terms of the an inflection point in my career. Because as you recall, part of that time was spent working with Dr. Rice to prepare her for the 9-11 commission hearings, obviously working closely uh, with folks like John Bellinger, our friend. And I remember really clearly around that period of time, the co-chairman of the commission, Tom Kane, sort of famously talked about we were unprepared. Uh, he said, we didn't grasp the magnitude of a threat that had been gathering over some considerable period of time. It was a failure of policy, a failure of management, a failure of capability, and above all, a failure of imagination. And this yeah. idea of a failure of imagination really captured me and has kind of been a thread that I have pulled throughout the remainder of my career, but it even goes backward as well. When you think about, you know, I, I arrived at West Point in 1986. It was still the Cold War. I minored in Russian, mm -hmm. thinking I was going to graduate into a very different world. And then in 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. It was peace breaking out all over the end of history and classmates mm -hmm. that thought they'd be obligated for five years were, you know, getting out early. And so it was a completely different world that frankly, we really didn't see when I got there. And then it's a theme sort of, as you think about 9-11, but even in my career after leaving the White House and going to Fort Meade at the National Security Agency, where I served uh, over a decade, time in Iraq, uh, in Afghanistan, standing up the Army Cyber Battalion, U.S. Cyber Command, then going back to the White House and sort of being the head of counterterrorism policy during the rise of ISIS, and then to Morgan Stanley, where I, I went there to set up our cybersecurity fusion center and ended up standing up the fusion Resilience Center in December 2019, which was envisioned to be able to respond to any sort of disruptions from uh, cyber threats to technology incidents to terrorist attacks to geopolitical threats to uh, infectious disease. And mm -hmm. so ended up being mm -hmm. responsible for managing the firm's response to COVID along with our chief medical officer, Dave Stark. So this whole idea of preventing failures of imagination, but also using the power of imagination, what I call the imagination coefficient, to be able to motivate innovative solutions to the most complex technical and operational problems is, you know, something I always think about our time uh, in the White House from 2000 to uh, 2002. Right. Well, since you now invoked a math term, I'm going to quickly kick this over to David, but just uh, taking it more to the present, Jen, you're obviously the second director of CISA. CISA has been around for around four years. How do you see the agency's first four years now in hindsight, and what should we expect from the next four? Yeah. You're talking about coefficient is what you what you characterize. Yeah, that's the math term. That's you that. scared him there. Um, <laughs> wow. He may need wow. some smelling salts. Not that I'm any better on math, so um, I'd have to call yeah. my daughters. <laughs> I think I'm bad on math too, because I think I just said the wrong years. I was actually with Brian 2002 to 2004. Um, so, you know, the, the memory goes. So, yeah, it's interesting. The, the second director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. So I did a blog actually for our, to accompany our year in, in review and was sort of thinking about what the past four years look like. Of course, I came here in around 
July of 2021. But since the agency was established, uh, a bunch of interesting things happened. First of all, we we underwent a massive agency-wide reorganization that had a significant change on our organizational structure and moved us into a more regional approach uh, so that we could better serve our stakeholders across the nation. But that was a, a big reorg. Secondly, we were designated the election infrastructure, what's called the Sector Risk Management Agency or SRMA. Uh, so we were front and center for many Americans for the first time during the presidential election in 2020. And then, of course, during last year's uh, midterm elections. Uh, we also led the nation during several major cyber attacks and vulnerabilities, including the one known as Solar Winds, and then the Log4j software vulnerability that was discovered in December of 2021. We were involved in uh, weather disasters and terrorist attacks, um, including reducing dangers of bombing attacks and misuse of dangerous chemicals. And then, of course, like the rest of the world, we were in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so it was over the last four years, there was a lot that went on with this very young agency. Mm -hmm. uh, but over that period of time, we also matured significantly. We received new authorities, new responsibilities. Uh, we have brought in a lot of new talent, and we've retained a lot of our terrific talent here. Uh, but even with all of that churn over the past four plus years, I think it's been an incredibly productive time for an agency really just getting its legs underneath itself. And so it's a privilege to have the opportunity to continue to grow what I think of as sort of a startup agency, particularly if you look at the key players that we spend most of our time with. The NSA, where I spent you know over a decade of my career, is what, 75 years old, and FBI over 100 years old. Mm -hmm. And so um, I often time think about, okay, you know, where do we want to be in the next 10, 20, 50, 100 years to really grow our capability as America's cyber defense agency. So the decisions that um, my team and I are making now, I think, set that important path for our future evolution and growth. You know, we want to talk about the cyber strategy. It's a little document you may have heard of just came out recently. But <laughs> your sort of commentary on CISA and DHS and maturity level makes me just want to ask one follow-up on that, which is sort of, I mean, DHS has been around for a while, but I don't think anyone would describe it maybe as fully mature, fully realized, fully actualized. How do you see the progress of DHS and its maturity as against and in conjunction with CISAs? Are you, you know, first of all, you, do you see yourself as a part of DHS or really as more of a standalone member of the sort of U.S. cyber community? And how do you feel the larger agencies maturing as compared to your own element within it? I think it's a really good question. I think it's a both and. We certainly are part of the department. And in many ways, it's really helpful because there are other elements of the department that have cyber mission. And so the close working relationship that I have, for example, with Dave Pekoski at the TSA, uh, given their role in some of the work going on around uh, pipelines with respect to cybersecurity and, of course, some of the aviation work. And so it's great to have that close teammate relationship, particularly given the work that we've done following the ransomware attack against Colonial Pipeline. And certainly uh, with respect to Deanne Criswell at FEMA, where we play a large role in the field, 
working with some of the emergency management folks. You know, we're really on the resilience side, but we also can play a role on the response side as well. And then there are major policy issues that run across the full department. And so you're absolutely right, David. I mean, the department only just turned 20. We had the 20th anniversary, I think just a couple of weeks ago. And so you could say compared to other departments, um, it is a bit of a startup as well and is continuing to mature. I think just given the imperative of the threat environment, how different things are from when the department was stood up in 2003 to uh, how things are now, you know, the department has had to evolve and we've had to evolve particularly rapidly just given the acceleration of technology and the acceleration of the cyber threat. Um, So I would say uh, we're almost moving at a accelerated pace while still an important part of the department, but also a very important part of the federal cyber ecosystem. You know, you talked to uh, my great friend, Chris Inglis before, you know, who um, he and I went through confirmation together and we always talked about cyber being a team sport and how important it is for that federal cyber ecosystem to operate in a unified, cohesive way. And I've also very importantly seen that mature over just the past 20 plus months since I got here. Yeah. Now, so Chris, you know, said he's the coach and you're the quarterback. But when we talked to Kemba, she was using musical analogies, not sports. So <laughs> well, you better just hang on and see what's coming around the corner <laughs> on those adjacent seats. It, it could just be a marching band and then you got both places. <laughs> Maybe that's right. how to square the which, circle. Which might be the biggest mix of metaphors in uh, 10 words <laughs> in quite yeah. some time. But the, I mean, to that point, Jen, we can't not ask the cyber lanes in the road question. And, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use, there's plenty of cyber threat to go around as as one of our prior guests said and I think as you've suggested but how do you sort of operationalize that how, how do you know on a day-to-day basis who's doing what yeah it's so funny I mean look I always get the cyber lanes question and you you all are a very sophisticated group and as is your audience so they could probably explain it better than me at this point in time but just to be clear so you know, very different from the executive office of the president um, having an operational component. So uh, the NSC, of course, does policy. And the NCD was stood up to give coherence, to establish coherence across the federal cyber ecosystem. And importantly, they were given the responsibility of developing the national cyber strategy. And big props to Chris and to Kemba and to Rob Kanaki and Harry Krestja, Uh, who did an incredible job collaborating with hundreds of partners as that document evolved. And they should be really um, proud of the work that they they did. But when I think NCD, I think uh, cohesion, coherence, strategy, NSC is policy, and CISA is the operational component that does cyber defense. So we actually, by statute, play two key roles. One of them is cyber-specific. One of them really speaks to our larger infrastructure mission. But the elevator pitch that I give is that as America's Cyber Defense Agency and as the National Coordinator for Critical Infrastructure Security and Resilience, our mission is to lead the national effort to understand, manage, and reduce risk to the critical infrastructure that Americans rely on every hour of every day. So if it has to do with cyber defense, we have the lead for it. If it has to do with uh, investigation and pursuit, that would be our 
our bureau partners, if it has to do with intelligence collection and security of the uh, military networks, those are our DOD and NSA partners. And I think the great news is um, the orchestra is playing very, very well. I just saw Tar over the weekend, actually. So that Look was at the that image seamless that- transition to music. <laughs> I mean, it's like you're just in harmony. I know, right? But I was say I saw Tar over the weekend, and that's okay. what came to my mind when you said um, the orchestra and Kemba. Well, e- e- even though you're all first chairs, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm happy to like you know. Well, let me just let me just stop you for a second, Jen, because. You mentioned the strategy. Obviously, our listeners are very interested in that. When you when you started the conversation talking about our time working for Dr. Rice, I, I thought where you were going to go was the thousands of hours that we all collectively spent on the very first national strategy to secure cyberspace, which is kind of one of my formative uh, moments in cybersecurity. And I so I paid a lot of attention to those strategies over the years, and they were pretty consistent. Um, even during the switch from uh, President Bush to President Obama, this one I think is really quite revolutionary, and I, I really take my hats off to ONCD and you guys and the White House and the NSC. Two places where I think it's particularly revolutionary are something I know you've talked a lot about, which is moving—these are my words, not yours—financial and legal liability and responsibility for defending against and responding to cyber attacks to those parts of society that are most able to uh, absorb it. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. And then I want to talk about offensive cyber operations. Sure. Um, I agree with you. I think it's a really good document. I think there's some uh, things there that are materially different and really important. And the two, you know, you pointed out one of them is essentially put the security burden on those most able to bear it, which is not the user that doesn't understand the threat and really doesn't understand how to defend themselves. And that's extensible to users, but as well as small businesses. Um, And the second is to really focus on long-term investments for security. But they're really a piece of the fundamental issue. And and you all might have seen the foreign affairs article that Eric Goldstein and I wrote on this, as well as the speech that I gave at Carnegie Mellon, which is really about the fact that we have normalized a world where we are all now dependent on fundamentally unsafe technology. Why is that? Because incentives have been misaligned for decades. We have incentivized speed and cost and features, but we've not incentivized uh, safety and security. And so now we're in a world where ultimately uh, the security burden is put on those least able to bear it. And we think it's really important to recognize it, to call that out, and to start making a fundamental shift uh, that will put the burden on those, again, most able to bear it, which are the bigger companies and the technology manufacturers who who build technology that, again, is not at the level of safety that we need uh, to be able to underpin the critical services that we rely upon every day. And yeah, the discussions, I know there's been a lot of debate, a lot of lively <laughs> debate about uh, liability. And we do mention Safe Harbor, of course. But if you create bad software, is that you know just generally something that everybody should accept? Or if you are not building software products that are specifically designed to reduce the number of vulnerabilities, just expecting everybody to patch that when the patches come out, 
I think we need to be really, really thoughtful about that, given how connected everything is that we rely upon and how, you know, the vast majority of our critical services are underpinned by a technology base. I think it's a really important conversation to have. And, you know, the point of departure was, was the national cyber strategy and some of the things we've been talking about and writing about. But I hope, you know, I hope we have this debate in a, in a collaborative way and not just, oh, you're going to kill innovation and uh, we're going to fall behind on innovation, you know, relative to our, our peers, because, you know, we had this discussion on technology safety. There was a discussion about social media and safety related to that, obviously, by folks like Tristan Harris. Um, you saw probably the Netflix piece on this, The Social Dilemma. And now mm-hmm. there's some important discussions being had about the safety of artificial intelligence, which is moving very, very rapidly. And I think most people will tell you they don't totally understand it. They don't know what the safety implications are. And this is just all a piece of being able to have an evolved conversation about the safety and security of the technology that we rely upon every day. So Jen, how does that conversation, which obviously has been ongoing, really get down to brass tacks? I mean, you, you're you very careful, you and your colleagues in the government are very careful in talking about you know the need to lift and shift the responsibility, but you are rarely invoking the R word, or when you do, you do it carefully. So how do you instantiate and get to the place where you want to be with a combination, I guess, of, of carrots in the form of maybe safe harbors and liability shield sticks in the form of requirements and maybe industrial policy as well? How do you actually see yourself getting those those new requirements and new approaches implemented? Do you have legislation you're working on, for example, uh, that you want to disclose? <laughs> or are you going to use existing authorities or moral suasion? Or what, what's the What's the vehicle for putting these things into effect? Well, well first, um, as Chris might have mentioned, and um, if you've talked to Kemba, the devil will be in the details of the implementation of the strategy. So when that work is already beginning, it, it will have to be a across the interagency, but, but importantly, with our um, friends in Congress, as well as very importantly, with industry. As you both know, CISA is largely... Uh, a voluntary agency, the magic of our ability to be effective uh, to reduce risk to the nation in a world where the vast majority of critical infrastructure is owned and operated by the private sector is really rooted in trusted partnerships. And it's hard to build trust and easy to lose it. So I'm not a regulator. And I realize that regulation has a role, but I also came right before I, I um, came from CIS, came to CIS, I came from a highly regulated industry. And <laughs> <Yeah>. so, <laughs> as you both know, um, and regulation has its place, but I all, I'm always super mindful about regulation that creates a bunch of box checking as opposed mm-hmm. to operational risk reduction. And I worry very much about regulation that is not harmonized. So that's something that we are working with, you know, as part of the the uh, cyber incident reporting legislation came this idea of a cyber incident reporting council uh, that's led by the department. And the whole idea there is if we are going to put additional, and this is just for reporting, burdens on industry, which I think are 
important just given the fact that we have so little insight into the number of incidents that occur. And it's very important to get a better uh, a better feel for the various um, things that are going on and so we can be much more proactive and preventative. But at the end of the day, we want to make sure that whatever burdens are being placed on industry are being placed in a way that they don't become that box checking, that they are harmonized, and that, frankly, they allow the ecosystem itself to be more secure. So I think that's incredibly important to keep in mind whenever you're talking about regulation. I also think to my earlier point, you know, we are looking at there is regulation going on with sectors, which is not new regulation, of course, when the White House talks about regulation, this is really making use of the rules that are already in place. And some of the rules that are being put in place, I, I actually think of uh, they've done as they've evolved, they've done a nice job in working collaboratively and consultatively with industry. So, you know, in particular, um, my friend Dave Pekoski, I think they've done well in terms of the iterations they've gone through. But this is not new legislation, so I, I don't think anybody thinks that that is going to happen. Uh, there was legislation, there was some um, draft legislation that was developed by the Cyberspace Solarium Commission about the liability piece. So there may be people looking at that with respect to the implementation, but I do think that's an important conversation to have. I also think that, you know, at the end of the day, we need to look at the root cause, which is really the underpinning technology. You know, when a co company gets breached, you always focused on the company that got breached and why didn't they patch the software? And you don't ask the mm -hmm. question, you know, why did you have to patch that software <laughs> so many times? And why did that unpatched vulnerability cause such a damaging breach? But yeah, I, I just think we need to think holistically about it. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing, 
Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yeah, it's a great point. And two, two, two of the three of us are lawyers, and Jen, congratulations for not walking that path. Um, so I, I have to say to our listeners that our friends in the plaintiff's bar are watching this debate very, very closely. And the reason I know that is they're calling me and probably David about potentially being expert witnesses. So, you know, I think from an industry point of view, the senior leaders of some of our major companies have already testified after solar winds that, it, yeah, it probably is time for a little bit more regulation. And I think most companies, and I don't know if this is the way you guys felt at Morgan Stanley, but most companies would say, if we have to have regulation, we would rather have very clear, understandable, operationalizable standards 
from the federal government than 50 different states as we have now in, for example, incident reporting. So me personally, I wouldn't rule a statute off the books. Yeah. I mean, to your point, I, I just think if you have a patchwork, that does not help us reduce risk. Absolutely. And so whatever we do, we have to do it in a in a in a harmonized way. And we need to do it in collaboration with industry, right? Because industry understands, you yep. know, and I know this from my time in, in the bank, you know, nobody understands better than industry, those who are operating their systems, what is going to most most effectively reduce risk. And so these are performance-based standards, right? Not like the, you know, right, checklist yeah. that um, is down to the granular level saying, you know, you must do Can this. I pull a couple of threads on cyber incident reporting. So, I mean, you know, we, we've got various sector agencies imposing by regulation under extant authorities, different reporting obligations, SEC, TSA, and so on and so on. There's dozens of them, I think now. Uh, NSTAC recently recommended that you, Deconflict and harmonize all of those. Are you uh, warmly embracing that um, mandate? That's question one. Number and question two, I guess, is as you implement Circea, are you going to be sensitive to the desire of some of the reporting elements, the cybersecurity or cloud or computer companies, to not have to give up sort of their secret sauce, their own internal sources and methods and analytics, which I think they believe may be better than anything the government has. And they're worried about uh, sharing across industries, uh, you know, through you. So are you going to harmonize as NSTAC is suggesting, and are you going to be sensitive to exactly what you compel by way of reporting? Your first question, David, I uh, wasn't fully briefed on it. To be to be frank, I do believe very strongly in harmonization. I, I'm not sure about where that should sit within the U.S. government, but I do think that should absolutely be the be the goal. Um, it just goes back to my fundamental yeah. belief, having seen it, having done it, that if you have a patchwork, it will do nothing to reduce risk. Your second question, like, tell me more. I'm not sure I totally understand. Well, the, you know, if you look at the Im implementation questions around Circea and you have incident reporting right. obligations, when such and such happens, you know, you have a certain amount of time to produce a response and send it in. But, um, you know, I think sometimes, and this is pretty common, the, the, the companies that are doing the reporting may have concerns about trade secrets or other proprietary knowledge going across the transom to you. Uh, then being shared with all other federal agencies, um, uh, particularly the Bureau seems to be very sensitive about it. You recall Lisa Monaco's comments. <laughs> and then perhaps being shared with competitors uh, through the sector-specific councils or other interactions. Are you, are you sort of keyed into limiting what gets reported or aware of the concerns in a way that you think you can manage through? I mean, the short answer is yes, a couple things. And, you know, we're going through the rulemaking process now, so I can't yeah deep dive, as you know, but we endeavored, and I think we were effective and successful in this, to make this as consultative a rulemaking as possible, right? We had an RFI where we had hundreds of hmm. submissions. We had, hmm. you know, I think 11 listening sessions. I think we're going to do more listening sessions. I mean, we really wanted to- All over to... the country, right? I mean, you went, you went door to door. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we wanted to make this collaborative. 
again, this is a lot of this is informed of my own personal experience, right? This is not about, this is not about punishment or enforcement. Quite frankly, you know, this is about two fundamental things. One is about rendering assistance if needed. Now, many of these big companies obviously have IR incident response companies on retainer and don't need the U.S. government, but some of the smaller entities might. So it would be about rendering assistance, but more importantly, taking that information and given uh, our very robust authorities for information sharing in a way that protects privacy, I think that's why the Congress focused on giving it to us, because we had those authorities already in place, Um, being able to share that information with others across the sector to ensure that others do not get hacked. It's it's the most important thing that we have is to be able to protect the sector. It's sort of, you, you know, if you're if you're in a neighborhood, you're going to want to know if your neighbor gets robbed so that you can make sure you're locking your door and closing your windows. I mean, this is about proactively informing others to enable them to protect themselves. It's not about providing IP or trade secrets or any of that. And in fact, we are highly, highly sensitive because, again, we are a voluntary agency that is, you know, everything with us is really based on trust. We're highly sensitive on the any fears about sharing information that might impact the reputation of the company. So, you know, we're not obligated to share with regulators. Um, we do work, of course, very uh, closely with the Bureau. You know, credit to my old boss and, and good friend, Lisa Monaco, Uh, I think they've done fantastic things uh, since she came in as the DAG in terms of their focus on cyber. And frankly, we have a fantastic working relationship between my head of cyber, Eric Goldstein, and Brian Bordran, the head of FBI cyber. It's incredibly collaborative. And, you know, they are very, very focused um, now on helping victims uh, and also looking to get things like if they've paid uh, a ransom, we saw this with Colonial Pipeline, getting that money back. And I think that I think that entities appreciate that. And I think that's <laughs> yeah. more trust, right? And so we're doing this as a team, but I really want entities to realize we are here to help. It's not about you know stabbing the wounded. It's about protecting the ecosystem. And I think it's really important that people ultimately, companies, particularly part of critical infrastructure, and that's what this is focused on, really collectively put collaboration over self preservation because this ultimately is about our national security and economic prosperity and public health and safety. Well, speaking as we were about CISA expanding, going around the country, and also about helping entities protect themselves, I know you've done a lot of thinking and some shifting into more of a regional model uh, for CISA. So how should the public understand and how should they know when to, for example, reach out to a CISA regional office versus the FBI versus other parts of DHS? How, how do the, What do those lanes look like? Yeah. So, you know, first of all, I have to say, this is the funnest part of this job. When I was in, you know, the military or at the White House or at the NSA or even at Morgan Stanley, I wasn't out in, you know, the heartland of America working with state and local officials and working with business owners. And that is like the most fabulous thing because you see actually the impact that you can make in helping small businesses and working with election officials and others. So it really is uh, fantastic to build out this capability in the field. And so, you know, we are working 
to grow, it, particularly in cybersecurity, but we have physical security advisors, we have a chemical security mission, we have uh, an emergency communications mission. So it really is an integrated capability that is out in the field that is just getting more powerful every day because, again, we realize it's all about creating trust and adding value. And so when you ask about, like, who do we go to, I think the, the right answer is, there should be no no wrong door. You know, some mm-hmm. people may not want to come to DHS. Some people may not want to come to the bureau. But we are so tightly connected, both at the headquarters and pretty well connected in the field. Obviously, the field offices are much bigger than our offices, but we'll continue to grow. But you know, when you come to one part of the U.S. government, you should feel like you're coming to the full U.S. government. That's frankly the theory of the case behind our Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative, because you know, even as recently as when I was at Morgan Stanley, I did not feel that there was that sense of cohesion. And I think Chris Inglis did a lot to bring this together. But you can go to FBI, and if it's information that needs to come to CISA, particularly if it's reporting, it will come to us. If it comes to CISA, we'll provide to FBI. But you can sort of think about the key uh, advantage to CISA is really what I would call as a you know retired Army officer mm-hmm. left of boom. So we are in the uh, resilience building space. So what are the things that critical infrastructure owners and operators need to do? to raise the security baseline, whether that's cybersecurity or physical security. So we work with all of our partners doing assessments, providing no-cost cyber services to help them raise their baseline. And one of the things I'm most excited about is uh, our work with water facilities and with K-12 school districts uh, and with hospitals. This year, we prioritized that work along with our government partners, EPA, ED, and HHS to really try to drive down risk in those what we call target-rich cyber-poor entities, those those entities that we've seen pretty badly hit by uh, ransomware over the past couple of years, but really don't have the resources or um, necessarily the in-house knowledge to be able to raise that cybersecurity baseline. And, and our field forces are the ones uh, that are at the tip of the spear working with those partners. The, the one other thing I mentioned that I'm also really excited about is we've been working with our industry partners and with researchers to do some of these ransomware pre-notifications. We'll find out about infections that have occurred but have not yet been activated. Uh. And our field force is on the front line of reaching out and talking to partners saying, you know, we are seeing this activity on your networks. And I just got an outreach from somebody the other day saying, hey, I got a call from this person in the field. They told us about this activity. We were able to isolate it. It It's fantastic. And, you know, that's like a great day, right? When you feel like you can help prevent a business from getting owned by a bunch of cyber criminals. And, you know, that's work that we do with our federal government partners, but also with our industry partners. It's just really rewarding to be able to make a difference. That really is important, especially given how, you know, every time I think the cyber criminals can't get any lower, they do get lower um, in in what they're willing to release publicly to coerce people. So that's super great uh, development. Also, really happy to hear you mention the support for K through 12, although now I have to call a reporter back that I told yesterday I didn't think there was much support through K through 12 because there really haven't been resources for them. So that is that is a really good development. 
Can I just mention one thing? Because for those who might be interested, so there was a K through 12 Cybersecurity Act that I think came with the um, NDAA for 2021. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, we did um, a lot of work with some experts in the field to include K 12 6, a great partner, uh, Doug Levin in particular, to provide a guide for K through 12 schools to reduce their cyber risk. And so if anyone is on your listeners is particularly interested in this and has kids in K through 12, and yeah. there's a guide out there on our website, and it's um, really uh, very good. So I would refer you to that. Oh, that is great. Yeah, thank you. So one of CISA's taglines, uh, if you will, is as America's cyber defense agency. And you mentioned a few minutes ago, the joint cyber defense collaborative. And I noticed that this initiative is intended to unify defenders from organizations, not just governments worldwide, and it specifically includes public-private partnerships. Can you talk a little bit more about JCDC and more generally the government's plans for partnerships, particularly in what we might have historically thought of as offensive cyber operations? Yeah. So we are squarely rooted in defense world, but we obviously work closely with our partners in the offense world. Um, in particular, we work very closely with U.S. Cyber Command um, to help inform what they do and what they learn in things like their hunt forward operations helps inform the thing that we do on the defense. We actually call it the offense defense flywheel. Um, so, you know, Eric works closely with Joe Hartman, who's the, the commander of the Cyber National Mission Force. Uh, but I, the JCDC, you know, was another one of these things that just emerged from the brilliant work of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, came with the NDAA in 2021, where we got a lot of our new authorities. And the idea was this joint cyber planning office. Uh, but when you look at the legislation, it's about a lot more than just planning. And also, I didn't like JICPO as an acronym, so I thought it was <laughs> <laughs> like, like, a, like a skin disease or something. Fabulous. Um, and, and right? Am I right? That's how the sausage gets made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so of course, we had to figure out like what the hell to call this thing. And I love 80s music. So I tried to call it the Advanced Cyber Defense Collaborative, and the lawyers didn't like that. So. <laughs> right. Well, you know you know where that highway leads. I exactly. Know. Straight I'm to hell. Talking to a bunch of lawyers, right? I, you know, I take a Shakespearean mutilers. But um, and yeah. we ended up with the um, JCDC. And what the insight of the Congress really goes back to this, there was no one platform that industry could go to specific to cyber defense. And so in the legislation, and this is the only sort of federal cyber ecosystem that is in legislation, it talks about brings together by name, CISA, FBI, cyber Um, uh, NSA together on one platform to be able to face off to industry on all matters of cyber defense planning and operations. And so we stood that up in August of 21. We brought in our first 10 partners that were largely some of the technology providers because they have great visibility into the threat ecosystem, given how they're positioned in the world. And we've grown that to many, many more partners, not just technology, but finance and aviation and energy. And we were able to operationalize this first in December of 2021, when Log4j, the software vulnerability that we were very, very concerned about, given its ease of exploitation and its ubiquity within critical infrastructure and the community, both within industry and the federal government, and folks like some fantastic researchers who were energized to work on this all came together uh, in a short period of time to 
work together to help us get guidance out and advisories to drive down risk, uh, to better position us to be proactive against uh, mass exploitation of Log4j. And there's a, if you read the Cyber Safety Review Board, you'll, you know, you'll see some of the work that we did that really, with our partners, helped to drive down risk. And then, of course, during Ukraine, we work with our partners to build a Ukraine um, plan to deal with escalated attacks against critical infrastructure and to have that in place when um, in time actually we exercised it for several hours with industry and our federal partners in advance of the invasion uh, of Ukraine by Russia. And so these are, you know, I describe having seen this for a long time. Look, we've all talked about this public-private partnership, blah, 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 right? I mean, everybody's eyes glaze over because it's kind of a hackney term. So we were really endeavoring to transform public-private partnership into real-time, what I call persistent collaboration, right? It's all based on default to share, collaboration over self-preservation, a co-equal relationship, meaning that we expect industry to play a um, forward-leaning role on what they're sharing and what they know, and we expect the government to be responsive, to be transparent, to add value, right? So this is this is not a transactional relationship. This is one that where the the, the parts should come together to create something, you know, greater than the whole, as the saying goes. And you know, it's not. We like to say it's not a club. It's an engine that is supposed to drive our ability to reduce risk to the nation. I, I do want to ask one question. And um, it's a little bit of a softball, I guess, but I'm interested in how you're going to respond. So following up on public engagement um, and thinking about you and Chris and Anne, I, I don't know Kemba quite as well. You know, you all have certain things in common and then there's some some differences. In common, you're all NSA alum. Uh, you're all very smart, very substantive, very experienced, um, as we've seen today in this podcast. But each of you, I think, had a very distinctive style. So Chris, I would say they probably forced him to have a Twitter account. And um, then he wrote, you know, a foreign affairs article on a new social compact updating Rousseau and approaching the issue from that level. And is more comfortable engaging with uh, New York Times and Jim Lewis. And you've got a, a Twitter avatar with a superhero cape and a slogan like Shields Up. Did you guys like intentionally adopt different outreach and engagement styles? Is it just a reflection of your personalities? Is yours in part an effort to recruit millennial talent to, to CISA? What, can you tell us a little bit about how you feel about or and how you've approached engagement in that way from a stylistic perspective? Yeah. You know, I ha- I've had my time, m- my time with uh, Sanger and company and Jim Lewis. And, <laughs> you know, I studied Western philosophy and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and all of that. So, right. but, y- you know, I-, I guess a couple of things I'd say. First of all, my avatar, I shamelessly stole that from my great friend and predecessor, Chris Krebs. Yeah. Um, so that was... Credit uh, where it's due. <laughs> yes, exactly. Give him credit. You know, I spent whatever, 21 years as an army officer, a lot of time downrange, spend time in skiffs, as you know, um, windowless offices. I spent, as you all know, and have done hundreds of hours in the White House sit room. Like When I got to Morgan Stanley, it was a little bit of like a revelation for me <laughs> to be in this different world, <laughs> yeah. in the private sector, in a firm um, with some amazing people and an amazing culture in a city that I love in New York City. And in many ways, like I sort of realized the real, 
<laughs> the real me, you know. And I just decided when I came back from the private sector, like I wasn't going to change back to my, you know, bureaucratic gen ways. And <laughs> really, like, you know, and think, I don't know if people have been this vulnerable on a lawfare podcast, but that's like the real, the real truth. I mean, I just wanted to, and, and, and to your larger point, I think it is really important when you think about the challenge of recruiting people into cybersecurity, into technology, you know, it's it's a world where bureaucracy is not embraced, to say the least. <laughs> and so you have to have these real conversations and you have to be vulnerable and you have to be authentic and you have to be, frankly, accessible. So, you know, people criticize for me, me for being out there and meeting with people. It's like criticizing Nate Fick for being around the world, you know, being a diplomat. Hey, that's his job, right? And in many yeah, ways, right? Yeah. Exactly. It's like my job to build trusted partnerships and to recruit people for America's cyber defense agency. But at the end of the day, like if you wake up in the morning and you don't love what you're doing and you're not having fun and you don't feel like you're making an impact, like for God's sake, go do, go something, do something else. else. Well, yeah. well, we we love the vulnerability, Jen and Brene Brown. If you're listening, come on the Lawfare podcast <laughs> anytime. Uh, and it's great to know where you got where your avatar got her cape. I just wonder now if you need to extend that to have bureaucratic Jen who slides down a pole and emerges as avatar <laughs> cape Jen. But don't take PR advice from a lawyer ever. I'll get my comms team on it. <laughs> So, yeah. Thank you so much yeah, for joining it's us. Been it's terrific. really been great. You're very generous with your time and uh, a promise slash threat. We're going to invite you back in a year or two and uh, see how things turned out. Sounds great. So great to be with you guys. Thanks so much for taking the time. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for the next installment in this series with NSA's Rob Joyce and for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. And check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer for this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.